when I talk about accessibility, many people think of step-free access, you know, elevators and things like that. And of course, that's an important part of it. But accessibility is more than that to me. It's about what can we do to take away the mystique of every journey and to make it, again, as easy as possible for people to travel and to encourage that travel. This is Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Good to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast, Transit Unplugged In-Depth this week with David Scorey, who is CEO of Keolis North America. David, thanks so much for being with us on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Paul. Yes, so David and I have known each other for a while. We work in an organization together about contracting. And David, tell us a little bit about Keolis and the role that, that Keolis plays in North America in the, uh, in the area of contracting for public transportation. Oh, yeah, I'd be delighted to. So, well, let me tell you a little bit about the Keolis Group first. So okay. Keolis is one of the largest public transit operators in the world. We've got 68,000 employees and we've got contracts in 14 countries. And we operate pretty much every mode of surface transportation you can think of, whether it's trams, driverless metros, we're a world leader in driverless metros, buses, heavy rail, bicycles microtransit, you name it, we we operate it. We're mode agnostic and customer centric is something that we like to say. Here in North America, we've got three main operating divisions. We've got Keolis Commuter Services that operates the commuter rail network here in Boston, Massachusetts uh, for our client, MBTA. Uh, we've got Keolis Transit America, which operates fixed route bus and paratransit in the United States for a number of clients. And in Canada, we've got Keolis Canada. And there we operate a B2C, intercity bus service, Orion Express. Uh, we operate a tramway service in uh, in Grand River, and we've got some fixed route and airport shuttle operations. So, you know, a bit of a diverse portfolio. And here in North America, we've got over 6,000 employees working for us. Wow, that's amazing. And how long have you been, you know, working with Keolis? So I've been working with Keolis now for, wow, it's 18 years. The first 12 years in the UK, and I can talk a little bit more about that uh, a little later. And uh, I've been here in the United States for six years now. I came to the United States to be the CEO of the Boston operation, the commuter rail operation, and just over a year ago took on the North American CEO role. Prior to that, it was uh, Clement, right? It was Clement, Clement Michel, who was here in this role. Many, many people will know Clement. He's uh, he's now back in France, still working for Keolis, actually heading up our global HR and safety organization. That's great. He's a great guy. He was a good pal for a long time. I tell you, I'm so impressed with Keolis itself, David. I, I, I think I've told you, but I'm not sure. I mean, I've been able to visit a number of Keolis operations around the world uh, in Australia, in France, and in, in the United Kingdom. And it's just a great company. And, and as, what's Bernard Tabery? What's his role there? So Bernard is the international CEO. So Bernard is actually my boss, and he oversees all of our international contracts. And Paul, you mentioned some of the locations there, but we've got contracts in India, in Dubai as well, as well as in Sweden, in the Netherlands, in the UK, here in North America and in Australia. And Bernard oversees all of those contracts. That's great. He's a great guy too. I, I remember having dinner with him one time at one of your big events. I don't remember why I was there, but we were we got to hang out. My daughter was with me and uh, just so impressed with him. And another thing I'm really impressed with about how Keolis does it, and I've, you know, I've worked for a number of companies that are in private contracting, you know, a company called Laidlaw and Mayflower way back in the day and and uh, Yellow Transportation, who these companies ended up being acquired by larger companies that that people might have heard of today. 
so I've seen a lot of contracting. And one thing that's really, in my mind, unique that Keolis does is these, I don't know if you still call them this, but I think at the time they were called visualization rooms. And it's where you put up all the KPIs on the wall. Tell us about that a little bit if you can. I mean, I, I'm a big one on focusing on the numbers and measuring your success by metrics. And that's what those rooms do, right? They do. At Keolis, you know, we're trying to strike that balance between having a corporate governance framework that allows each of the operations to operate in similar ways, to have a really sound, robust management system in place, but still give um, the flexibility for autonomy at local level for tailoring what we do to the contract needs, you know, the local environment and the needs of the client and so on. But one of the things that's consistent across the Keolis operation, Paul, is, as you said, is the yeah. visualization rooms. Um, and uh, what we do in these rooms is we focus on the key metrics, the key data that's relevant to that operation. We put the data on the, we have management meetings there on a regular basis where we get the management team together. We look at what's going on in the operations, the trends, what's going well, where we need to improve, and we agree together how we're going to improve. And it's a consistent focus. It's a real drumbeat, heartbeat of the operation. And it really allows us to focus on what's important to the client, what's important to passengers, and how we can better deliver against those needs. So as you say, it is a, a consistent feature that you'll find in every Keolis operation. And why don't we dig in a little bit there? I don't know if I've ever done this before on the podcast, but let's talk about KPIs. And what are the metrics of success of operating a public transportation? I know that I talk a lot. I just came back from speaking at Apta Tech in Denver, and I talked about, you know, how we're measuring success in transit and how many transit agencies now have replaced ridership increases. That's no longer their number one KPI. You know, now it's customer focus, customer service, and ridership is number two. And Apta survey recently showed that. But public transportation across the world really does share kind of like music. I'm a piano player, and, you know, there's the international language of music, right? You read the notes on the staff. Public transit, in my mind, is the same way. There are key performance metrics that everyone measures, such as on-time performance, such as productivity. Walk me through some of those, what you have seen in your career as being you know, the, the, the key important metrics that are measured to determine the success of an operation. Sure. Well, the first one is, is an obvious one, and it is the fundamental. It's safety. You know, every operation will be focusing on safety, measuring safety and working to continuously improve safety. Beyond safety, operational excellence is an important metric. And what does that mean? Of course, it means on-time performance. It means consistent delivery. It means continual improvement. But it also includes what you're delivering to your customer every day in terms of the experience that you're delivering, the quality of the environment, the cleanliness, the, the customer service levels, the information flow. So operational excellence encompasses all of those, and there'll be specific metrics around those things. In some contracts, we measure revenue. And in some contracts, we take revenue risk or we're incentivized to grow revenue. And so working with the client to make sure the service is geared to deliver what the passengers, what the community needs, and is being adapted and evolved to deliver those needs to encourage more people to utilize the service, you know, feeds through to Fairbox revenue. So in some contracts, we'll be measuring that where that's a feature of the contract. And then there'll be some contract specific metrics around, as you say, productivity, efficiency, rolling stock availability, some detailed metrics around infrastructure availability on heavy rail networks, for example. So, you know, there are some fundamentals that will be common to every contract and then some specific specifics will be relevant to the operating environment, but making sure that those metrics are really clear, that they're the ones that are important to the client and the customer is an absolute priority. One of the reasons why, and I've served 
in multiple capacities, you know, both, you know, CEO of an agency with contractors working for me, but also working as a contractor. And then in a county management role where we had contractors, one of the things that people may not realize is that government agencies or transit agencies that operate transit and contract it out, one of the ways they show you what's important is that they incentivize or de-incentivize performance of certain metrics. And we call those liquidated damages. And basically, a transit agency might say to Keolis or another contractor, we want you to accomplish 92% on-time performance for, let's say, paratransit. And if you, in a month, get less than that, we're going to charge you money back to – tell us how that works, David, because I don't know that everyone understands that. I think you've explained it pretty well, but so within the contract, there'll be certain output measures or it could be input measures that you need to achieve. Right. So on-time performance is a great example. So uh, the contract may say that, uh, that you're required to deliver 92% on-time performance and they may have some conditions around that, you know, things which are within your control and things which aren't within your control. And quite often you're excused for the things that are outside of your control. Yeah, severe weather events or things like that. Right. However, if you don't achieve that metric, then you'll pay penalties for not achieving the metric. And that's important. Of course, it is a way to ensure that the contractor is focused on the right things. But what's also, and we're seeing this come through now in contracts, and I think it's a very welcome development, is the incentivization side of things too. Because if as a contractor, you could invest in additional staffing, perhaps, or in making some technical changes to the equipment that you're operating, then in return for that investment, if you could receive incentive payments, then that's a win-win. So if you could deliver 95% on-time performance with some investment, but in return for that, there's an incentivization that's attached to it, then that enables you to really make the case to make the investment, to deliver the better outcomes, but to be rewarded for it. And so, you know, the liquidated damages is one side of the equation, but really I think it's important to consider incentivization in order to enable investment and to encourage contractors to go above and beyond to deliver even higher levels of service. And of course, that's what everybody wants is to see ever better performance. And that's what we want too. That's right. I think that's largely why many public transit agencies actually contract out is because they see the value of bringing in top level experts, companies that do this all over the world and have real world learnings that they can apply to improve the operational excellence every day. Totally. And, and I think that's one of the benefits of contracting. You know, I mentioned at the, at the start of the podcast, um, this is global footprint. And what that enables us to do is in every contract that we engage in, you know, we, we agree with the PTA, what the PTA is trying to achieve. And then we bring our global expertise, our experiences from elsewhere to help the PTA achieve the outcomes that they're seeking. A, a really relevant example right now is around new energies, energy transition, electric vehicles, hydrogen vehicles, um, hybrid vehicles, and so on. And so here in the US, of course, that's an incredibly relevant topic at this point in time with the funding that's been made available by government to encourage deployment of more energy efficient new energy vehicles. But for many agencies, they don't have the experience in that. Having a contractor such as Keolis on board, we've had large scale deployments of hydrogen, of electrical vehicles, and we bring the learning and the experience to the, to the, to the operation that hasn't got that experience to help um, ensure the right choices are made, the deployment strategy is sound, the implementation is seamless, and the benefits that are being sought are delivered early on. So having a contractor on board who can bring that experience 
um, is is significant additional value to the to the agency. And I, and I think you know that that's a specific example, but there are many other examples, whether it's around customer experience, ticketing, how to stimulate ridership, how to replan services, how to improve efficiency. All of those are things that we we are doing day to day across over 300 contracts right now. So bringing that to bear on a, on a new contract is really important, something that we value. That's great. Yeah, I think, I mean, another one obviously is autonomous vehicles too, right? I mean, that's something that companies have experience with all over the world. And as people want to pilot those kind of new things, it's great to have a partner who already has experience. Yeah, and uh, we actually operated, I'm pretty confident in saying it was the first AV in the United States in in you know public operation on the Las Vegas Strip. We did that a couple of years ago. We've got another deployment in Canada right now. We've got multiple deployments in Europe. But as you say, Paul, you know each deployment is a learning experience, and this is technology that is evolving. Understanding how this technology interacts with human beings, with other vehicles, and so on is part of the challenge. And as time is going on, of course, we're getting more familiar with that and, and keeping up to date with the emerging technology. So again, it's something that we can bring to to agencies that want to pilot these sorts of things or go for a, a wider scale deployment. Yeah, and it, and it touches on a topic that is that I'm actually passionate about, and that is partnerships. So as I mentioned, I've worked on you know all sides of this, and I see the value of partnerships. For example, when I was CEO of the MTA and we had a paratransit operation, we had three contractors involved, and uh, I did not manage them, and I did not our staff did not manage them by inputs. We didn't tell them how to do it. We managed them by outputs. We said, here's the metrics we want you to achieve. This 92% on-time performance, no more than two preventable access per 100,000 miles. And then we allowed those companies to use their global expertise to actually provide those results. And when I left the agency five years ago, I believe, David, we had the highest on-time performance and the lowest you know, accident rate of any major paratransit system in the country. We were at over 96% on-time performance on paratransit and had one preventable accident, less than half. And it wasn't anything that, you know, that necessarily I had done. I had just unleashed the contractors to bring their experience. I mean, and we see that in Europe a lot of times where there's much more of a partnership view, whereas here in the States sometimes it seems like it's more of a vendor view. Do you have any thoughts on that? I'd agree with what you're saying there, actually. And I think partnership is is in our DNA. It's what we want to do. And how do you express it? I've mentioned it already, but if an agency wants to achieve particular outcomes through the contracting process, through the RFP process and the contracting process, expressing those outcomes really clearly, what the agency wants to achieve by when, with some some parameters around how to get there, you know, I think is really important. But then Allowing the contractor to bring the expertise, the flair, the innovation, the knowledge, the experience, the resources in order to deliver those outcomes can create an incredibly powerful partnership or alliance. And actually, something that we've in Europe seen increasingly is formal alliances. There is actually an international standard around alliancing that people may not know. And it sets out how to create a really successful partnership. And one of the key fundamentals of that is being clear on what your common objectives are. What does success look like for both parties? How do you get there? And then within that, how do you manage conflict? How do you manage change? How do you measure the success of the partnership? And so having that kind of mindset and those arrangements that allows each party to be clear on what's success uh, and to bring their strengths to bear on that success, I think is uh, it, it is the most powerful alliance that you can have, uh, and you can deliver great outcomes um, for each party in, in that kind of environment. We're, we're seeing it. We, I think things are 
developing here in the US, you know, certainly in, in the six years that I've been here, the relationships with the vast majority of our, of our clients are improving. We are taking a partnership approach. We are finding what success looks like for each of us and finding ways to deliver it. But I'm not sure that it's inherent in all of the other uh, kind of the relationships in, in the US at this point in time. You mentioned your six years here and some of your experience overseas. Why don't you tell us about that? It's a good time to uh, talk about your career and and uh, what roles you've played and what brought you here to the U.S. Delighted to. I think it's fair to say that maybe I've had a bit of an unusual career path. And I'll try and keep this really short. I could go on for ages. But you know, <laughs> I got into transit in a maybe an, in an unusual and, and an unintended way because of an unexpected circumstance. I left school early. I left school at 16. I needed to get a job. And, and a, a job that I applied for, which was one of the first that I saw, was a, an apprenticeship, a mechanical apprenticeship. And so I spent four years as a mechanical apprentice, completed, completed that apprenticeship. And that was working on buses, on trucks, on heavy plant and equipment. Finished that apprenticeship, stayed in that environment, had a young family and needed to improve my earning potential to be totally transparent. And the railway in the UK, the rail industry in the UK was looking for mechanics. And so I joined working 12 hour night shifts in South Wales. And that's how I got into public transportation, joining what was then British Rail, which of course subsequently became privatized and contracted very successfully, actually. I found that the, the industry, the rail industry, offered huge career development potential. There were a multitude of roles, and this is true for transit. You know, there's almost every discipline you can think of in business there in the transit industry. And so that opportunity allowed me to diversify. It allowed me to, to become a supervisor, a manager in the rolling stock discipline, and then to diversify into things like contract management, project management, change management, transportation. And ultimately, after many, many career moves and many kind of stretches and, and learning experiences. I became the CEO of one of the larger commuter rail networks in the UK, a company called Southern, which operates between London and the south coast of England in 2014. And that contract is a joint venture between Keolis and a British company called the Go Ahead Group. So that's the Keolis connection. And so when Clermont came to the US and was looking to bring some extra resources to help with what was then still a relatively new contract here in Boston, he asked whether I'd be interested in coming over to work in Boston as the CEO to operate, help operate this contract. And that's how I, that's how I arrived here. I've been here since, as obviously. We settled here, I'm a permanent resident here. We're gonna stay in the US. My wife is very happy here too. We're staying in the US long-term and delighted to be here. But that, that's how I got to, to this role. And you and I work together in an organization called the North American Transit Alliance. You wanna tell us some about that and, and what the role is? It, it really is kind of what we've been talking about, contracting, right? It is. It's, it's, it's an industry organization. It's an alliance between six of the, the, the leading contract organizations here in, in North America. And what we're really looking to do is to make sure that we're doing all we can, firstly, as be transparent, to promote contracting, but also to promote the industry and to promote public transit. And so we're an advocacy group, you know, not-for-profit group that's, uh, that's really looking to help influence the future trajectory of uh, public transit here in the US um, and also the role that contracting can play in public transit. Um, so uh, we meet uh, on a monthly basis. We talk about policy. We talk about some of the challenges that the industry faces and how we can help the industry overcome those challenges. 
That's great. Yeah, I view it kind of like, you know, the airline association. So you've got these big airlines, Delta, American, you know, Southwest that I just flew last night. And they are fierce competitors, but they understand that there are basically, you know, safety needs and needs of the industry in Washington, D.C. that that they can join together and do legally, you know, under our current rules here in the U.S. and around the world to work together to improve the industry. And uh, I think that's important. Right now, we're at a we're kind of at an inflection point, I think, in the industry, David, coming out of COVID, where ridership patterns have changed. I mean, you operate, I think, the largest commuter rail contract in the country. Is MBTA the biggest one? It is, yes, by yeah. far. So, so, and I was up there talking with the CEO of MBTA a few months ago at the Smart Transit Conference, and he was telling me how that even then, you know, ridership was very slow coming back. Let's talk about commuter rail for just a minute or, or and maybe the industry itself. We're recording this, you know, in near the end of August and ridership is slow coming back still on commuter rail. I was just in Denver yesterday speaking with the CEO of the Denver Transit System and with Phil Washington, you know, and the Denver Eagle runs the commuter rail runs from downtown right out to the airport where Phil is CEO and the ridership on that has definitely picked up. But for the regular ridership, what's going on there? And what do you think the future trends are coming for commuter services in particular? Yeah, great question. COVID was just an enormous disruptor, maybe the biggest disruptor in in society in 100 years. Yes. Um, and for public transit through the COVID crisis and beyond it, there have been various stages. Of course, transit was absolutely vital during COVID and you know, to support healthcare workers and other essential workers and the people who work in transit deserve every plaudit that's 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 offered for the work that they did during that period. Society has changed. We're seeing that, and we need to adapt our transit offering to reflect what society needs today and to influence what society might want in the future. And I think in Boston, and I know you spoke to Steve Poftak about this. I listened to that podcast with great interest yeah. about the adaptation to the commuter rail service. And what we're seeing here is that riders are returning. We're currently at around 60% of the pre-COVID ridership and it's growing. Um, of course, this is a slightly, you know, this is the, the vacation season. And so post Labor Day, we expect to see a bump again, but the patterns are different. More people are riding off peak than were riding previously. More people are riding at weekends. In fact, weekend ridership is higher than pre-COVID now uh, on the Boston commuter rail network. And so in order to help support that, we really changed the service offering here. Prior to COVID and during the early stages of COVID, the service offering was peak orientated, you know, between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m., bringing people into Boston, pretty modest service off-peak, sometimes up to two hours between trains, and then between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m., an intense service again, geared to take people out to Boston. That's not the pattern that people have now. And so what we did was we moved towards, as far as we could, a clock face service that's running at regular intervals throughout the day, you know, an hour apart or even 30 minutes apart on some parts of the network so that people don't need a schedule anymore. If you travel between station A and station B, you know that at 15 minutes past the hour, every hour, there's a train for you. And that has really helped, I think, influence people to travel who might not have traveled, to simplify travel. And that's a really important point, I think, simplifying travel as much as possible, making it as seamless as possible, as accessible as possible, is something that we all have to be striving for. And reflecting the demand that that our passengers and, and our communities have. And I think that's a great example of partnership. We work together with the T to create that schedule. 
and another side benefit is it's it's a bit more efficient to operate actually so you know it's it's a win-win i think it's the right service for passengers right now it helps deliver the service more efficiently and i think it'll help to to help ridership grow in the future so that's a very specific example of the sorts of things i think we need to be doing as a principle across our operations really rethinking what we're offering and how we're offering it and how we can make it more accessible and attractive is a, is a challenge that we all have to to, to meet I agree. Are there any other trends that you'd care to comment on that you're seeing either here, you know, in the U.S. and Canada or globally when it comes to public transportation and where you think we're headed in the future? I think just a couple of things, and it's on that theme of making it more accessible. So, of course, when I talk about accessibility, many people think of step-free access, you know, elevators and things like that. And of course, that's an important part of it. But accessibility is more than that to me. It's about what can we do to take away the mystique of every journey and to make it, again, as easy as possible for people to travel and to encourage that travel. So information, digitizing information for passengers, helping with journey planning, as far as possible, integrated ticketing so that you can travel across multiple modes. All of these things can really help people feel more comfortable in making journeys that they may not have made by public transit in the past. Help with that first and last mile conundrum, which is a real challenge for people. It's a blocker. So we have to do all we can to address that and to encourage people onto the networks that wouldn't otherwise be there. And so we're seeing you know, improvements in microtransit. That's a trend that I think we have to really be mindful of. Whatever form that is, you know, whether it's scooters, whether it's bicycles, whether it's linking up with the TNCs, all of those things, improvements in information and digitization and a move towards seamless ticketing, ideally, ideally using technology that people already have, using their phones, using their contactless, you know, debit and credit cards. If we can move towards those things, I think we'll see ridership being stimulated and responding as a result. I agree. Yep. Phil Washington was telling me yesterday that he'd like to see the what you can do with credit cards, obviously. But, you know, when you ride the commuter rail into the airport, have the same payment options, have it all on, you know, one app and and really tie in multiple modes beyond what we normally think, not just ground transportation, but air transportation, too. So I think, as they say, the sky is the limit. David, this has been a great, really good in-depth conversation about contracting, about your background and really about where transit is headed. Thank you so much for taking this time to to share with us some of your background and wisdom. Oh, absolutely my pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transit Unplugged in-depth with our special guest, David Scorey, CEO of Keolis North America. And next week on Transit Unplugged News and Views, we have Steve Young, Chief Innovation Officer at VIA in San Antonio, talking with Paul about technology and innovation in transit. If you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on Transit Unplugged, feel free to email us anytime at info at transitunplugged.com. And don't forget to visit transitunplugged.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter so you are always in the loop with everything going on with the podcast and the TV show. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy.